Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith from the Department of Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent with the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre for China in the World. We're recording today from a beachside residence near Bondi, so expect to hear some bird noises and perhaps even some rain. We're joined by Dinny McMahon, the author of China's Great Wall of Debt, and Tim Murray, the co-founder of J Capital Research, who's lived for 19 years in China. China's once unstoppable economic rise is slowing down, and the warnings seem to be mounting. Back in 2016, George Soros warned that China's situation was like the U.S. just before the 2008 financial crisis. It's serious, and 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 the the Chinese left it too long to to address the changeover in the in the、uh, growth model that they have to adopt from. You know, investment and export led to domestic led. So a hard landing is practically unavoidable. Warnings about debt levels have been repeated by the party mouthpiece, the People's Daily, former central bank governor Zhou Xiaochuan, hedge fund manager Jim Chanos, and most recently in late May by the governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia, Philip Low. Among the largest economic risks that Australia faces is something going wrong in China. And perhaps the single biggest risk to the Chinese economy at the moment lies in the financial sector and the big run-up in debt that there's been in China over the past decade. The rate of increase in debt over the last decade has been the largest of any major economy. A staggering 63% of money created globally between 2007 and 2015 was made in China. Just last week, a leading Chinese economist, Zhu Min, the former deputy managing director of the IMF, put China's debt-to-GDP ratio at 220 percent. Although others say it's much higher. Dini, let's start with that 220 percent. Japan had a financial crisis when its debt-to-GDP ratio was 220 percent. Thailand at 180 percent, and US pre-2008 was 180 percent. How worried should we be? Well, I think that actually probably lowballs the figure a little bit.、Um, I think that、uh, the IMF calculated that the number a couple of years ago was already at about two hundred and seventy percent of GDP,、um, and by some estimates, it's already higher than three hundred percent of GDP. But ultimately, the issue here to worry about isn't the absolute level of debt relative to the size of China's economy, but it's the pace at which that debt has accumulated. So. Uh, the IMF did some work on this a couple of years back, and it showed that other countries that have accumulated as much debt as China has、um, over a comparably short period of time have invariably experienced some sort of financial crisis, and, and that's the risk that China faces at the moment. It's that it's racked up too much debt too quickly, and that the debt hasn't been well invested. Resulting in a build-up of non-performing loans、um, and a lot of waste that, at some point in the future,、uh, means that it, you know the problems will come home to roost. Tim, I believe research by J Capital Research put that figure closer to three hundred and ten percent, including bonds and shadow credit. But I mean, even that assumes that the we believe the GDP growth figures that the Chinese government puts out. 
And I mean, that's kind of, they're, they're quite doubtful, aren't they? I mean, even Li Keqiang, the premier at one point said they were for reference only. I mean, really, do we have any idea actually how big this debt problem is? Um, look, I would agree with the sort of um, greater than 300% number to um, reported GDP. And that's because you need to throw in bonds. Um, there was a very large swap out of um, bank debt by local government financing vehicles about two years ago into uh, bonds. And so it really was just old bank debt being shoved into bonds. So you need to put that in there as well, which gets you over 300%. Now, speaking to GDP, um, there's a whole debate about whether GDP is actually a useful uh, number at all to analyse an economy. But just on the veracity of uh, GDP, four provinces have admitted that they've overstated their GDP. Um, Inner Mongolia, probably the worst, at I think it was more than 30% higher than what they'd stated. They restated it uh, at, a, at an amount 30% lower than what it was. But more importantly, the fiscal revenue of the province was overstated by 40%. Now think about that in terms of servicing debt. It's a very different calculation when you drop your fiscal revenue by 40%. And there's a number of provinces in this situation. I think the interesting um, observation to be made on all this debt is how much does it cost to pay the interest? The interest bill on this debt is about equivalent to 16% of GDP. Now, GDP is only growing at 6%. That means... It costs more in interest to service the loans than what the economy is growing by. And that in itself is a definition of a Ponzi scheme. I mean, that was my next question. Is China's economy basically a Ponzi scheme? Dinny, what's your take? I don't think the best way to think of China's economy uh, is as a Ponzi scheme. A better way to think of it is like this. So... China's economy over the last decade has sort of expanded at the pace that it has because uh, the overall amount of debt has expanded even more quickly than the size of the economy. And so we're now at a position where the government's trying to rein in the pace of debt expansion, and that's actually having a direct impact on the pace of growth. So the, the, the economy has slowed somewhat. Now, the issue here is what would happen if and when the debt burden stops growing or even gets thrown into reverse? What would that actually mean for the economy? And chances is it would at least require insignificantly slower paces of growth. And so we're now in a situation where, you know, the leaders at the highest level of government certainly are aware of these problems. And since Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang sort of took over the government in 2013, they've been talking about the need to find new drivers of growth so that there's a recognition that the economy can't continue to grow in the way that it has, which is relying on more debt to drive investment. Certainly, you know, when they first took over, there was a lot of talk about you know, urbanisation, that this would be the driver of growth in the future, but that's very much turned out not to be a silver bullet because, you know, there's been a huge amount of money um, wasted on a lot of housing and infrastructure um, built in places that it hasn't been needed. 
So the new vision for economic growth now focus, is focusing very much on innovation and the need to, for China's industry to move up the value-added chain. Um, and significantly more problematically is this idea that China will need to start producing a lot of things that it currently imports, things that it buys uh, and consumes domestically. Now, the problem is, is that the direction that China is heading in, um, and this has been quite clearly enunciated under what has been called supply-side structural reform, is that this is effectively moving towards something akin to an import substitution program. And so China's growth in the future will, to some extent, come directly at the expense of trade partners like the United States and Germany and Japan. And that's kind of where the problem lies you know on one level things cannot continue the way they are, um, that being sort of the economic growth model can't continue the way that it, it currently operates. Um, China cannot continue to grow by racking up more and more debt. But the solution to, uh, to this sort of problem is kind of putting China directly into a headlong collision with the interests of developed economies. Now, there's a lot of things I'd, I'd like to follow up um, with you there that you said, um, one in particular about urbanisation as a, as a driver of growth, which to most people will seem um, a little bit puzzling that you can turn uh, peasants into Starbucks sipping urbanites um, overnight. And you quote a figure from the, a Chinese official, uh, Chiao Runling, the deputy head of the China Centre for Urban Development, um, who says existing plans for new cities and new districts in China were already enough to house 3.4 billion people, more than twice China's existing population. The model of build it and they will come doesn't seem to be working, and, and you've visited a lot of these ghost cities. How's that working out now? All right, well, firstly, you have to understand why such over-the-top plans exist in the first place. It's not about internal migration. Much of what's being built or what's sort of planned to be built isn't necessarily in the big cities like Beijing, Shanghai, that are sort of um, attracting migrants in significant numbers. They're kind of in your third or fourth or fifth tier cities, um, which have significantly, already significantly invested in housing and in public works and really haven't attracted a fraction of the, the, the population that it's been, been, built, been building for. And the second issue here is that migration really peaked in 2012. So that those sort of waves of migration that we often envision of people moving from the countryside to the cities, they've already come, not, it's not so much that they've come and gone, but then just not occurring uh, to the same extent that they once did. So ultimately, urbanisation and these plans to build out Chinese cities, they're first and foremost about growth. And it's closely tied to the system of political rewards. So... What I mean by that is that Chinese mayors typically have five years in their role, uh, and many of them get promoted onwards and upwards after three or four years. And so given that their track record is very much judged based on their ability to grow the local economies that they're responsible for, they don't have a lot of options available to them to actually stimulate growth in such a short period of time. You know, long-term planning isn't really something that's on their agenda. And so the easiest way to stimulate growth in the short term is to borrow money and build something. And that's really what is driving this, this sort of expansion, this urban expansion, these massive expansion plans of, of Chinese cities. So how is it working out? 
It's been great for short-term economic growth. It's been great for the promotion prospects of a lot of officials around the country, but it hasn't been great for the local government finances because local authorities have taken on a whole lot of debt that they'll always struggle to repay. Tim's just uh, showed us a website which is called um, China's Ghost Cities Eye Candy for Pessimists. <laughs> There's these various catalogues, empty uh Empty towers, replica cities. Uh, Tim, have you been on uh, tours of these ghost cities? How, how bad is it? Um, actually, full disclosure, Anne Stevenson Young, my partner in business, um, put up this site because uh, we got her son, Sam Stevenson, to go travelling around China with a camera and just taking photographs of ghost cities. And so we've got all this stuff that we've had for years of ghost cities. And I think, you know, Dinny's absolutely right. There are so many of these. And as Dinny points out in his excellent book, you know, a place like Pudong, when that first went up, we all looked at that and laughed and thought, that's never going to be successful. It's just a swamp on the other side of the river. And it turned out to be really successful. But now that success has been replicated so many times and at such great speed there's nobody to go to these places and they're just empty all over the country. But I mean, how, how many ghost cities are there? Is there any way of knowing? Traditionally, we've always had trouble defining actually what a ghost city was. You know, traditionally, whether a city was a ghost city or not would very much come down to, you know, whether a journalist had visited there and hung around at dusk to sort of count how many lights were on or off in, in the apartment buildings. The most scientific number or methodology that that has been used thus far was uh, a few years back. Researchers at Baidu used the search engine's data to determine that there were probably around 50 ghost cities around the country. Now, that's a, a fairly conveniently round number. So, you know, it's difficult to say categorically whether there might actually be more than that. But regardless of how many cities can formally be defined as a ghost city, I mean, you see the phenomenon regularly as you travel around China, particularly when you get to city limits. You know, you kind of get to these sprawling developments on the outskirts of existing cities with all the infrastructure, the new roads, the government buildings, but with a fraction of the population of what these new developments were built for. I mean, one thing you point out in your book, and I think is worth bearing in mind, is even within Beijing, you can have ghostly developments because uh, a lot of Chinese people will buy apartments with no intention whatever of either living in them themselves or even having, uh, having tenants. So that could skew things a little, couldn't it? So, yeah, I'd always found that incredibly puzzling because the sort of thing you're talking about don't even exist on the outskirts of cities. They actually exist within the, the confines of Beijing itself. So when I first moved to Beijing, I moved into an apartment building that had already been there for two or three years. And yet in the evenings, only a fraction of the lights in the apartment buildings would go on. I mean, it was only, you know, from what I understood, every apartment had been bought and paid for, but, you know, hardly anyone had actually moved in. And my understanding of what was going on is that you know, although all these apartments had owners, people prefer not to rent them out because, uh, you know, you can't really trust renters to take care of the apartments and you're much better off just realising the capital gains um, by sort of, you know, retaining the apartment, keeping it empty and sort of keeping it at its original pristine state. So this phenomenon gets played out again and again throughout all Chinese cities. People are constantly trying to calculate just how many apartments are empty 
But the thing is, just anecdotally from your own observations, you see this phenomenon really play out everywhere. It seems that increasingly we're seeing this kind of trend where uh, the political side of reporting on economics and finance stories is becoming more and more sensitive. We, we've seen cases with financial journalists and even the British corporate investigator Peter Humphreys being detained, being forced to confess on national television to various wrongdoings. And I'm wondering, how does that affect you, Tim, at your job at J Capital Research, though? I mean, do you worry about the kind of work that you're doing when you're starting to sort of pull away at the foundations of these sort of big companies and, you know, big questions that really underpin a lot of modern China's success? Um, not really. We always do things in a legal way. We don't obtain any information that's not publicly available. Um, and in that way, uh, we can keep ourselves out of trouble. Now, obviously, if you aggregate publicly available information and interview people and therefore can uh, make a case that a company is committing fraud or exaggerating its performance, um, that report, when it becomes public, uh, will negatively impact the value of that company and upset that company. But actually, no, we have never really uh, felt uh, seriously threatened. But I know in reading... Um, Dinny's excellent book, the first chapter, um, tells about an investigation into a company called Silvercorp. Um, interestingly, we were also covering that, and uh, we sent one of our staff down to where the mine was and discovered that other people researching the company had been detained. And uh, the person we sent down said, this is just way too dangerous. And so we called him back and we stopped covering the stock. Um, because we just just figure that it's never worth the risk of putting ourselves or our staff at risk uh, in reporting on these things. And so there are times where we've just said, no, we'll stop here. <laughs> That's not worth it. But it, I mean, it sounds to me like the same kind of calculation that you have to make as a journalist, and Dinny, you'd know this too, in reporting on sensitive areas, that you often don't really know how sensitive and dangerous something is until you're right there and it's often too late. So how are you able to kind of protect your staff? We do a risk analysis really before we send people out and we wouldn't send staff to a place where we think it's risky um, or myself or Anne would go there ourselves so that we're not putting other people at risk. But we, we tend to very much avoid that um, and it's it's something that you just have to make an assessment. I think having spent a lot of time in the country, knowing what things can be sensitive, what areas, what environments um, will lead to trouble is, is helpful um, to avoid that. If I could chime in there, the other side of the equation is not just about protecting yourself, but protecting the people that you're talking to and the people that you're writing about. In the book, I have a chapter about land finance and the importance of private, privatising land to the finances of local governments and how local officials uh, take land from farmers because it's such an important um, financial resource to them. The family that I talked to about this had been petitioning the central government for years. They'd had a number of run-ins with local officials. And the, the father in the story, the, the particular farmer who'd had his land taken, he was more than happy to talk about this on the record, you know, to use his name, to use all his details. But certainly his family had significantly more reservations about him sort of you know, putting himself out there. So in the end, in my book, I use his name, but I don't talk about, I don't you know, mention the actual town or the village that he's from. Um, I kind of give a vague sense of the geography, but 
at the end of the day, I was trying to keep in mind the sensitivities and the, the potential risks that, you know, he and his family might be facing. Yeah, look, I think it's a really good point. We redact a lot of our information so that it's hard to determine where it came from. And behind a lot of our um, research, there may be a lot more research we never publish because it would compromise the people. So we, But we're confident in making certain statements because of that research. So we're very careful not to put uh, people at risk. The extraordinary thing about Silvercorp is that it wasn't even a particularly damning report that they were writing. They weren't uh, accusing them of fraud. Um, or anything like that. They were just saying perhaps there's some underreporting of the amount of silver in this mine. So Huang Kun, who you, uh, who you write about in the first chapter of your book, was detained by a policeman who essentially admitted that what Huang Kun was investigating was true. Uh, and he said to him, it's likely that the company you guys shorted really had problems. But now that you've messed with Silvercorp, the issue has been elevated. So you have to be punished. There's nothing we can do. Dinny, how was Huang punished? Huang Kun was part of a, a wave of foreign investors that had been investing in Chinese stocks listed in the United States. But in the course of the, the work they were doing on you know, the due diligence that they'd been doing into these companies, they'd found that many of the companies they were investing in were lying or they were you know, committing fraud in a lot of cases. And so they set about short-selling the companies and exposing the, the frauds in public. And in the end, dozens of these Chinese companies were listed from the U.S. exchanges. And as, as sort of a rule of thumb, Huang Kun and uh, John Carnes, the, the fund manager he was working with, they recognised that there were risks involved um, in doing this sort of work, but they tried to protect themselves by avoiding investigating state-owned firms because they you know, assumed that if they got state authorities offside, then they'd, they'd potentially be running real risks. Um, and so Silvercore was actually a private company, but what they hadn't realised was just how close... Uh, the relationship of the company was with local authorities. And so when they started investigating the company and sounding um, the alarm about their concerns, they immediately got pushback from local authorities. And for, for Huang Kun, that meant that he was detained as he was trying to leave the country. He ended up spending two years in a detention centre um, in a small room, which at times had as many as 40 other men. Um, most of his time in that detention centre was without trial. When he went to trial, he was found guilty of corporate defamation, which in most parts of the world is a, is a civil offence, but in China is also a criminal offence. Um, when he was uh, let out of jail after losing his appeal, he was put on a plane back to Canada where he was a citizen um, and hasn't been able to return back to China where his um, extended family lives. Tim, let me ask you, because I can see you taking notes uh, there and looking, looking worried, because after all, under Chinese uh, defamation legislation, the truth is actually not necessarily a defense. So the kind of work that you're doing seems to be becoming more and more politically sensitive. If you choose a company that has um, certain political connections, um, it wouldn't matter what you said, um, you'd probably get into trouble. So um, I think that is um, something that you run the risk of doing anything in China. You don't have to be actually writing something negative about a company in a public space 
people doing business uh, find themselves um, getting into trouble all the time. This um, concept of defaming a corporation is not one I've heard of before, um, so I'm going to do a bit of research on that. I've, I, and the fact that it's a criminal thing, I find, I mean, obviously it's true because this person went to jail for it, but um, that seems to me, but this is one of my adages about China is China has lots of legislation, lots of law. Um, in fact, to be compliant with them all is impossible because complying with one would put you in breach of another. And that's how the legal system is used, that at any one time, anybody can be found to be in breach of anything. Um, and so that's really, I think, oftentimes how the legal system works, is just having lots of stuff that you have to be compliant with. I mean, it's a really good point from Tim, um, because I, I often think that for people living outside of China, there is this assumption that because it is a communist country that... You know, it's very, people's lives are very much dictated by rules, that their rights and their freedoms are heavily circumscribed by rules and regulations. But the reality is that in China, the rules are actually extremely fluid. And there's a few reasons for that. Um, sometimes the rules that are put in place are, are deliberately vague so that the authorities have an incredible amount of wiggle room when it comes to applying them. Or sometimes, as Tim pointed out, the sheer volume of rules uh, is so great that at no point in time can you actually be 100% sure that you are actually complying with them, which give the authorities a, a huge amount of latitude as well because they can be selective in, in the rules they, they apply or otherwise. And then on top of that, the authorities regularly feel empowered to interpret the rules however they, however they like or, or to apply them selectively. Um, and this is actually one of the big issues in the United States at the moment in its trade conflict with China. Um, one of the issues that has come up is this idea of you know, China forcing American companies to hand over technology in kind of a, a pay-for-play environment. You know, if, you want, you, if you as a foreign company want access to the China market, then you've got to hand over some of your technology to uh, you know, a local partner. But the thing is, as the Chinese rightly say, I mean, there are no rules that explicitly require US companies or any company for that matter to do that. Um, in fact, the World Trade Organization rules explicitly ban the practice. The issue is, although these aren't actually written down anywhere, in practice, uh, you know, foreign companies, US companies feel obliged to hand over their technology because, you know, in, in the, the course of applying for approvals or a course of setting up their companies, it's made clear to them that that's what ex is expected of them if they expect to be able to operate in the Chinese market. Um, and so you get this situation where there is plenty of rules in China, but the way that they're applied, it creates this very sort of fluid environment that makes it difficult for foreigners to operate in. And it also makes it very difficult for Chinese to operate in as, as well, um, to be able to assess the, where the boundaries are in, t in terms of sort of their freedom of operation. So, I mean, for example, in Dini's book, he talks about um, a couple of mayors uh, who um, are, are known as um, Bulldozer Ji in Nanjing and, and Li Chuncheng. Now, the targeting of these kind of guys who've been associated with the worst excesses of urbanisation, could that do something to rein in this debt binge? I think this um, crackdown on corruption uh, issue, it overlaps in some ways. Like I'm just thinking of Anbang um, and Hainan Airlines, uh, Tomorrow Group. Um, these are corporations, private corporations that have just gone completely out of control in taking on debt and using methods that 
are just complete Ponzi schemes. And they've become so large that they've threatened the uh, finance system. And so Ambang was effectively nationalized in order to straighten it out. Now, Ambang is just the largest of these. Well, not it's not even the largest. Tomorrow Group is actually bigger. It's just one of the most high profile of these. Behind these companies, there's hundreds of others that were engaging in similar behavior. Now, were they captured by corruption? Maybe. Um, I mean, the, the head of Ambang has been uh, jailed for corruption and his acts were definitely corrupt. Um, but I, I think this is sort of where we see the intersection of the corruption campaign and excessive debt. I've got a slightly different perspective on that. When you're talking about um, controlling the economic risks and, and the accumulation of debt, you can't take what's been going on in the anti, anti-corruption campaign entirely in, in isolation. So if you look at the reasons behind why China's debt levels got so out of control over the last decade, what it really comes down to is that the sub-national levels of government, whether they be city mayors or provincial governors or even executives at state-owned enterprises, they had an incredible amount of latitude to borrow, do what they want with their money, but most specifically to get around whatever top-down directives were coming out of Beijing. So what I mean by that is that, you know, sure, debt was accumulating quickly, but time and time again, authorities in Beijing did try to impose some sort of reform to rein in the debt and to sort of uh, rein in some of the greater excesses. But time and time again, because of the decentralization of power and the local authority that many subnational you know, uh, authorities actually had, they were either able to um, directly obstruct those regulations or to circumvent them some way or to partially implement them. And so you had this situation where, like, time and time again, efforts at reform um, really didn't go anywhere. So now the anti-corruption campaign is part of a broader campaign to sort of break that sort of behaviour. So what we've seen over the last few years is that, firstly, Xi Jinping has managed to move some government responsibilities uh, into the hands of the party. We've seen that the degree of discipline over the party has increased significantly. And so at the same time, Xi Jinping has consolidated a lot of power over the party in his own hands. And when you combine that with the anti-corruption campaign, you have this situation where the cost of obstructionism by local officials or vested interests, the cost of obstructing what is asked of them by the central authorities has gone up significantly. And so I think on one level what we're seeing is that, yeah, the anti-corruption campaign, but in, um, you know, in concert with all these other political reforms, has made it easier for Beijing to impose some sort of top-down financial and economic reform on the rest of the system. Companies like Anbang, the renationalization of it. I mean, is this just a harbinger of what is to come? And how, and when we're seeing these massive companies like CEFC, which is another big company which has a lot of international projects and debt, um, when we're also seeing these get in financial trouble and not being able to service their debt, how, how much can the government go on picking up the tab and rescuing these companies? Uh, Tim? Um, Look, you've just happened to uh, bump into one of my pet issues, which is I think the whole debt thing is renationalizing China. Um, Because when um, debt is handed out, 
it's handed out to state-owned enterprises. As Dini points out in his book, state-owned enterprises only comprise 25% of GDP, but they take up 60% of debt. So when you know the, the, the sluice gates get opened on credit, they get opened to state-owned enterprises. What does that mean? It means private enterprises get crowded out. It also means that things get built because state-owned enterprises, they build stuff. You know, whether it's a local government financing vehicle building a new city or a factory building new capacity, we've seen throughout the last 10 years renationalisation in so many different sectors. Coal. Coal was largely private until suddenly the government decided, I want to ensure I've got good supply of energy at cheap prices. So they just nationalised the coal sector. It was said to be environment and safety, but in the end, it was renationalisation. So right throughout the economy, you're seeing a renationalisation, a move away from private enterprise towards state enterprise. Private enterprise um, fixed asset investment has been falling for at least a year now. And so they're running for the doors. They're leaving. The, the Chinese people we see here in Sydney, they're private people who sold off their factories and moved their wealth overseas. So debt is basically being used as a excuse to renationalize entire sectors. I don't think it's an intentional policy. I think the coal actually was an intentional policy, but I think um, it's a consequence of this method of development. We're now in a situation where China cannot stop lending. It's pointed out that they can't service the debt without issuing new debt in order to pay for the debt. And if you do that, where's it going? It's going to state-owned enterprises. And what does that mean? It means the private sector is shrinking relative to the state sector. It also means you're moving further away from a consumption and service-based economy and further into the hand of state planners. Dini, what's your take on that? Because in the book, you talk about innovative ways of uh, the private sector getting access to finance. You talk particularly about a company that does P2P lending. Um, How are those people who try to lend to the private sector faring in Beijing these days? Um, Well, certainly the fringes um, of China's financial sector have really been the Wild West in recent years. And as I said earlier, it's not that the government hasn't repeatedly tried to rein in the excesses. It's just that the system as a whole has been incredibly adept at getting around the rules. Now, that said, we are currently in the midst of what finally appears to be a fairly effective crackdown on shadow banking. It's still too early to say what the fallout of that will be. But Beijing finally seems to be taking at least some sort of control. Now, the thing to really watch, however, is whether the appetite for reform will continue if and when that crackdown has a real impact on economic growth. I'm, I'm really taken by what you said about re-nationalisation of the economy, but I also wanted to ask about the in- international consequences of this. When you're having these big Chinese conglomerates that have international you know, acquisitions and then they're being re-nationalised by the state, um, does that mean that China's debt crisis is being kind of exported? So I think the best way to look at this is is kind of through the lens of a comment made by Loji Wei, the former finance minister. The comment he made at the beginning of last year, he said, 
the problem that China faces is that it has been stimulating the economy in, in such large amounts for so long through this rapid accumulation of debt. And the problem is that when the time finally comes to reform, China won't have the resources to continue stimulating the way that it has. And so reform will be so much more painful than it would have been if they'd kind of used the opportunity of, to sort of make the most of that stimulatory period. And his concern was that the impact on that pain could actually have real political ramifications on China and that the political um, spectrum could either shift significantly to the left or the, significantly to the right. Now, what I think we're seeing with Xi Jinping at the moment is that he doesn't subscribe to that same school of thought. What he's trying to do is clean up the financial system, but without the pain. And that's going to involve... Um, cleaning things up over a long, protracted period of time. So what we've seen over the last couple of years is that the banks, for example, have finally started writing off their non-performing loans. But if the pace of the last couple of years is anything to go by, then conceivably this cleanup process is going to take at least a decade to write down all the bad loans that have, that have accumulated in the system. So the real problem here is sustaining economic growth in an environment where the existing economic model is no longer sustainable because if you know China continues to grow in the same way it has up until this point, then it'll only exacerbate the, the debt levels and the waste in the economy. And so there are two issues here. The, the first is that there are no promises this new model of economic growth will work, that'll be able to generate the levels of economic growth that are, that are required. And the second thing is that these new drivers of growth put China directly into a headlong collision with, uh, with its major training partners, which again potentially undermines the potential of this sort of growth model. I mean, it, it can't be that they can't see this coming. There, there, there must be enough people telling them what's down the road. Have any measures that the Chinese government has taken recently, are any of them likely to have any impact um, or to be able to stave off this crisis? Not necessarily. Um, I think Beijing has kind of got to a point where it realises it doesn't need to maintain control over companies to be able to exhort the sort of influence over them that's necessary to realise strategic goals. So yeah, this is certainly an issue that's facing governments in free market economies everywhere. So traditionally, if there was inward investment coming from a state-owned firm, that would send off red flags and alarm bells in capitals from DC to Berlin to Canberra. But these days, foreign governments are increasingly having to deal with the prospect that Chinese privately owned companies uh, are actually um, making investments overseas explicitly in the, the strategic interests of the Beijing state. Um, and that could take many forms. So it could be because they are directly using um, you know, state financing. So, you know, Beijing has set up, um, you know, government-backed funds that allow Chinese private firms to go overseas and buy semiconductor companies. Um, or it could just be because private companies themselves are sort of getting on board with the strategic plan or strategic uh, aims outlined in, in Beijing, and they're just sort of being good, uh, you know, good corporate citizens. 
We do have to wrap it up, but I just want to ask both of you, I really want to pin you down, apologies in advance, in the spirit of Gordon Chang's classic, I think he wrote it in the 90s, The Coming Collapse of China. I want to push each of you, Dinny, you first, to make specific predictions. Will there be a Chinese financial crash? And if so, when? May, may I make clear I didn't write this question? Louisa, <laughs> <laughs> I spent an entire book not making a specific prediction. But what I will say is I do anticipate some sort of economic reckoning, but I don't think a financial crash is the only possible outcome. So sure, there could be a crisis, but there also could be something that looks like Japan's lost decade. Or it could just be significantly slower growth. So, you know, you've got to remember if Chinese growth slowed to only 2 or 3% annually, whereas that might look fairly robust from an Australian perspective, by the Chinese measure, I mean, that radically changes um, the country's ambitions because it means that it's no longer catching up to the United States or it would literally take decades for the economy to be able to overtake the United States. So I think really... What this comes down to is we need to rethink our expectations about what I think is generally assumed to be China's uninterrupted economic ascent. Having said that, I don't know what an interruption to that ascent would necessarily look like. Tim, is China's economy the biggest Ponzi scheme the world has ever seen? Yes. And the thing about a Ponzi scheme is it can go on for a very long period of time. Uh, With Dinny here, it's really hard to predict um, a a collapse. I think one of the observations I've made is the creativity of policy uh, makers in the central government. Um, They're so good at finding new ways to put another finger in the dike. And um, for that reason, I think that they could sustain this um, economic model for quite some time. Um, However, I don't think they can avoid a devaluation of the RMB, which is where I think we're going to see a huge impact of this problem being exported to the rest of the world. And that will happen within the next two years. A prediction. Fantastic. Thanks to our guests, Dini McMahon and Tim Murray, and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. I'm Grant Smith, and you've been listening to The Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find show notes on Facebook to learn more about Dinny and Tim's work on China's financial system. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, background research by Julia Bergen, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Zeb Donta. Bye for now.